Well, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. As I said, it's good to see all of you. Uh, this is really not church. Uh, we, you maybe thought you were going to church this morning, but this really is not church. Uh, this is a seminar, uh, and it's a worship time, and it's good. But church isn't something you go to, it's something you are. We are the church. And so the value of this weekend experience is, is, is uh, found in how we apply it to our life once we leave this building. So welcome to the Woodland Hills Seminar. It's good to have you all here. And if I, if I forget to say at the end of the message, I want to say it up front, that we have assignments. This is a seminar, and so we want to work on these things throughout the week. And so we have assignments at the Hub, and after the service, just before you go out and get your burgers, uh, veggie or otherwise, um, then stop by at, at the uh, Hub and get the, uh, the assignment sheet that, that uh, gives you some exercises to apply the stuff that we're uh, going through. We've been for the last, I'm told it's about five years now, going through the book of Luke. Take breaks now and then, uh, but we're plowing through the book of Luke, and we're up to Luke chapter 18. Nothing fancy here, we just go verse by verse. I, I want to entitle this message, it's such an important foundational message. I want to entitle it, uh, Gatekeepers of the Royal Son, for reasons that I hope will become clear as the message unfolds. Gatekeepers of the Royal Son. And we're reading from Luke chapter 18, verses 34 through 43. It says, The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what, he, what Jesus was talking about. We ended last week with this passage. And if you heard last week, you, you saw that what they didn't get was Jesus teaching that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer to be tortured, to be spit upon, and to die. They didn't get that. They wanted a victorious, they expected a victorious military nationalistic Messiah. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer, it goes in one ear and not the other. Now if you understand that, you'll understand why they did what happened next. As Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem, he approached Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This man called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way, you know, it's the leaders of this march towards Jerusalem here, those who led the way rebuked him and told him to shut up. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped in his tracks and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when the man came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they all praised God. They also praised God. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I pray, God, for all of us in this auditorium or listening through podcasts or some other means, that you'll open up our ears and soften our hearts uh, to receive you in all of your radical beauty. Free us from the bondages of our presuppositions and assumptions and, and grids that we often impose on you. Free us to be courageous in letting go of everything that might possibly interfere with you. And use this message, anoint this message, empower this message to be a catalyst for kingdom growth in our life. Its whole purpose and meaning is found in that. If that doesn't happen, this is a waste of time. So Holy Spirit, will you just come in here and, and empower this word? In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. 
This uh, episode, the blind man calling out to Jesus, uh, there's a number of lessons found in it. Uh, on the one hand, people often look at this and they, they, you can get a message about how Jesus is the healer. He healed this blind man, and that's a good message, and we preach on that with some frequency here. Jesus is still in the healing business, and we need to have faith for that. Another frequent uh, application of this passage is that sometimes to get into the kingdom power and kingdom transformation, you need to be persistent. You need to overcome obstacles. It's not always easy. Uh, To have faith and to really get on the inside of the kingdom sometimes requires persistent effort in overcoming major obstacles. And um, I, in fact, was going to take this uh, passage in that direction this week. Was. But in meeting with my team and discussing kind of what this passage is, maybe what it has to say to us as a people here this morning, what struck, what struck us is this. It's not just that this man had to overcome obstacles to get to Jesus. But what really stood out to us was the obstacles that he had to get over to get to Jesus. And the obstacle that he had to get over to get to Jesus were Jesus' followers. In fact, it was the leaders of those who followed Jesus. And it brings out the point, tragic but important to note, that sometimes to get to the real Jesus, you got to get past his followers. Uh, You see, the disciples had Jesus in a nice box, a tidy box, a box of their theological and cultural assumptions. As they saw him doing the miracles and things of that sort, they came to the conclusion that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And that was true. The trouble is, as we've mentioned frequently here, that the disciples identified the Messiah with with, uh, a certain set of theological assumptions. The Messiah was supposed to come and, and, and go into Jerusalem and be victorious. Victorious in the sense of uh, defeating Israel's opponents. Uh, the Messiah was supposed to come and liberate Jerusalem to be the center of God's activity once again in the world. It was supposed to liberate Israel from all of, uh, of uh, its oppressors and uh, restore it to sort of, sort of the sovereign chosen nation status. The disciples were looking for a pro-Israel, pro-nationalistic, pro-military Messiah. And they had Jesus in that little box. And whenever you've got a tight little box like that, you see what you want to see and you hear what you want to hear and whatever is consistent with your box gets in, but whatever's not gets out. So when Jesus says, hey, you, know, you guys, I'm going to suffer and die, it goes in one ear and out the other because they're not looking for that. They're not listening for that. Uh, everything gets filtered through their box of assumptions. And as they're marching to Jerusalem, given their theological assumptions about what Jesus the Messiah is supposed to do, they think they're marching for victory, towards victory. This is a victory march, and Jesus is the soon-to-be-crowned king. And since they are the insiders, and they think they know Jesus so well, they position themselves as sort of the gatekeepers for the royal king, gatekeepers of the royal son. Every king needs a guard, and so they are going to be the guard. And so they, since they're the insiders and they know Jesus better than other people, they are going to now decide who gets to get in and who stays out. Who gets to have access to Jesus and who doesn't get to have access to Jesus? And see, kings don't usually stop for beggars, so why would the king stop for this beggar? In the first century, if you're blind or if you're disabled uh, or for any other reason, you can't support yourself. Your only option is to beg. 
And so uh, blind people were the beggars on the streets. So they, the streets were full of these kind of folks. And uh, most Jews looked upon these folks as being judged by God. That's why they had the infirmity that they had. And they were the folks that, that were on the margins of society, the folks that you tried to make invisible. Uh, when you're coming upon one of these folks, you kind of try to conveniently notice something on the other side of the street that you have to attend to, so you don't have to face the awkwardness of passing by them and, and not giving them money. The same thing happens today. And so these are the folks that, that were considered to be the lowlifes of the first century, the bottom feeders of the first century. And if Jesus is the king, the royal king, the mighty king, marching towards victory in Jerusalem, well then kings don't stop for beggars like this. Kings don't give time to bottom feeders. Uh, Jesus is too important. This march is too important. In fact, this guy with all of his shouting is kind of an embarrassment. You're raining on our parade. we got a momentum going here. And if we stop to talk to you, well then every beggar is going to want us to stop to talk to them. This man is interfering with their program. Their military victorious program. He's causing a mess, and therefore he had to be silenced. Now, if the disciples had succeeded on silencing this man, then the blind man would not have been healed, and neither they nor anyone else in this entourage heading towards Jerusalem would have seen a slice of what the kingdom is really about. If they had prevented the mess of this man's screaming, this disorderly conduct when the king is in the midst if they had squashed that successfully, then they would have missed the beauty of the kingdom being put and displayed that all the people praised God for once it happened, but they never would have seen it happen if the disciples would have imposed their order on this man's messiness. The most beautiful aspects of the kingdom come wrapped up in messes. And if we're too invested in a box, in an order, we will miss the beauty of that mess. To see the beauty of the kingdom, we've got to let God mess with our boxes and open us up and expand us to include a mess. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. None of us like, when we've when we got a program or an order, none of us like to have it interrupted. And we can all understand that. But we miss some, of, some beautiful things if we stick with that idea. Some of you who are more astute may have noticed that I'm a white guy. I don't know, a few of you have noticed that probably. I'm white. I, I, Irish, Scottish descent. Yeah, it's true. And a few of you maybe have also noticed that I have ADD tendencies. I, I notice everything that's going on. The people that are walking around, you know, and, and, and I, I, all the noises, all the cell phones, every little kind of thing, I, my brain picks it all up. Uh, and it's not just outside distractions. It's inside, in, inside the mind distractions. I, I'm always having thoughts pop in there that shouldn't be there, that have no place there. They are totally inappropriate here. You have no idea how much I censor. No idea. I'm always censoring. No, no, no. It's a tremendous hard job to stay focused on the message. So I'm a white ADD guy. Let me tell you about my first experience preaching in a predominantly black Pentecostal church. Uh, I came there with my sermon. They, they invited me to come and speak and, and uh, deliver this message. So I, I do my study, my research. This is about you know, 15, 20 years ago now. And see, I've since learned, having done this several times, that, that you know, there's, a, there's a lot of interaction uh, in a predominantly black Pentecostal church. And, uh, and if you flow with it, man, it, you get into a groove. And it, they, the, the folks, I, I did a, a, a sermon one time. It was a, a panned a 15-minute, 20-minute sermon. And it went for an hour and 20 minutes. And it was at a funeral. Uh, but the folks, I, I loved it. They were pulling it out and, and you know, the amen. And, and it, I, you get into a flow. And once you can let go of your little, sort of like tight little regime and go with the Spirit, man, stuff comes out of you that you didn't plan on saying. And you're kind of surprised to be listening to it. And it was wonderful. 
Okay, this was before all of that, before I learned that. And so I'm there in my white cultured kind of way with my white prepared sermon. And two minutes into it, a man in the front row stands up and says, you know what you're talking about. And I was like, whoa. Why, well, thank you very much. I studied hard. I, thank you, sir. So I, I, I get collected again, and I go on for another minute or two, and someone says, bring it on, you know. And don't hold back. And say it like it is. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm trying, but you keep on interrupting me <laughs> for crying out loud. You see, I, I have this sermon I prepared, and it's all decently and in order, and I want to give my sermon. This is what I'm, you know, I'm not comfortable if I'm sticking with my notes. Now, I know, as the sermon went on, I, I kind of started to get into the flow of it and, and let go, you know, just kind of let go a little bit and flow with the Spirit, and, 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 and you know, I was, I was getting adjusted. Uh, this is just one of these interesting comical cultural encounters. But just as I'm kind of getting in the flow, a lady stands up and starts wailing, crying. It's like happy crying, but at first I thought, man, she really doesn't like my sermon. <laughs> and then she was kind of pacing up and down the aisles with a handkerchief and just wailing. And, and she was thanking Jesus and crying profusely, very loud. And everybody else was kind of like going, amen, kind of seemed to appreciate it. But I'm sitting here trying to focus on my sermon. White ADD man trying to preach. And, and it's like, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? <laughs> you know, what are the rules here? Someone tell me the rules. I was thinking, is, is not, is, isn't an usher going to come and do something? And the, the, the senior pastor was in the front row, and he, he could tell that I was really kind of struggling here. And he even looked back a little bit, and I could see he was trying to decide, well, what, you know, what do I do here? But he let her go ahead. And, uh, and so I finished up my message, struggled through it, had a little altar call, and God showed up, and, and everything went fine. But after all the service was done, he came up to me, put his arm around me, and he says, uh, you know, I, I, on the one hand, I, I feel like I kind of should apologize for, you know, how hard that message was for you to give the last part when the lady was carrying on. But uh, let me explain to you something about why she was carrying on to kind of put it in perspective. And he said, two months ago, this lady got the revelation. The revelation that she was forgiven. She had been a uh, prostitute, drug addict, strung out on crack. Um, and about a year and a half ago, had sold her baby for drugs. And it never saw the baby again. The baby disappears into the black market. And she became a follower of Jesus six months previously. But only two months ago, did it get through to her that God forgives her? That even this unthinkable sin is forgivable. And she said, a, he said a weight came off of her and, and just realized that she's radiant and forgiven and the blood of Jesus Christ extends even to this depth. And she hasn't been able to stop thanking Jesus since. Amen. Reminds me of the sermon or the message in Luke chapter 7 when the lady comes in and breaks, bashes the party. How messy is that? Bashes the party and starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And Jesus says, To whom much has been forgiven, the same loves much. Well, this lady was very much in love because she'd been forgiven such an incredible debt. And once he told me that, 
there was kind of a, an embarrassment on my part that to think that a half hour earlier, I was hoping that someone would come and take her out of the service. Why? Because she's messing with my sermon. And I want that to be silenced, just like the disciples. We got a program here. Jesus is our royal king. We're the royal guard. Be quiet. And part of me wanted to do that. But see, if, if they had taken her out or silenced her in some way, and I was the only one in the whole auditorium that was having trouble with this, everyone else was getting blessed by it because they understood the story. I, the outsider, didn't. But if they would have done that, I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have seen the beauty of this incredible kingdom forgiveness. And this lady being beautifully transformed by kingdom love. And now the beauty of her expressing this gratitude and thanksgiving to, 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 to Jesus. Sometimes when we impose our order on things, we block out the beauty of messiness. We've got to be open to that if we want to see the beauty of the kingdom in all of its, uh, in all of its beauty. It applies to us here in, in a lot of ways. One is just in our own worship services. Uh, you know, sometimes, I know there are cultural differences here, right? I, I got that. We all come from different cultures, bring our own expectations and things like that. But this is part of what it means to be multicultural, to be open to different ways of expressing God. And you know what? When, when, when you realize that you've been forgiven a sin like that, you'd be pretty weird if you didn't get emotional. If you didn't get excited, if you didn't want to thank Jesus, if there wasn't some tears and maybe some laughter involved. And when Jesus touches you and, and, and you realize his love for you, how can you not get excited about that? When you understand that you were destined for destruction and now you're destined for eternal life, dancing with the triune God, how do you not get excited about that? How, how do you bottle that up? It seems very appropriate to express that. And when God touches your body or, or, or heals your body or heals your mind or heals your marriage or heals your relationship with your kids, how can you not get excited about that? That's the most beautiful thing in the universe, and it needs to be expressed. And sometimes, you know, I know the Bible says do everything decently and in order, but sometimes we take, I think, a lot of our, especially Scandinavian white cultural assumptions about how orderly it's supposed to be, and we impose it on what Paul said, and it goes way beyond what Paul meant. You know, maybe we need to loosen up the categories a little bit and let people express what's in their heart. And, and you know, it's sometimes frustrating me when people say, ah, I was so excited, I felt like I could just dance. Well, then dance. I, felt, I, was, I wanted to just say hallelujah. Well, then say hallelujah. I, mean, I agreed with everything you said. I wanted to say amen. Well, then say amen. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I'll adjust. I, I'll get... Now, don't argue with me from the pew, okay? That, that's pushing a little bit far. That's happened before, and then I really can't focus. But, but you know, I mean, we and you don't want to manufacture stuff to put on a show, but, 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 but when there's stuff on the inside, it's natural to express it on the outside, whether it's kneeling or raising your hands or shouting or laughing or crying or kneeling. And, and, and maybe you're not used to it, and, you know, and so the person next to you is a little bit of a distraction because it's going outside your cultural assumptions. But here's where you just say, Lord, I don't want I, I to ever put the Spirit in my cultural box. And so just let go of the box. Just, just go ahead and let, let it be. Just enjoy the messiness, how it's messing with your box. That's a good thing. It's expanding you. And just try to appreciate how this person's getting blessed and expressing it in this way. Who knows? Maybe it'll even loosen you up a little bit to let a little, bit, a little more of what's on the inside come on the outside. Don't miss the beauty by imposing too much order on it. It applies to our life in general, folks. It applies to worship, but it applies to our life in general. To get to Jesus, this man had to be willing to make something of a mess. And to get to Jesus, this man had to press through Jesus' followers who were trying to keep him from making a mess. They were the assumed gatekeepers of the royal son. They thought they knew Jesus better than this blind beggar. In fact, the opposite was actually true, turns out. 
But they were the ones to decide who gets in and who stays out, who gets to have access to Jesus and who doesn't get access to Jesus. And so they decided this, this man was too messy for Jesus and didn't belong to their holy club of those who think they really know Jesus. To get to Jesus, this man had to press through his followers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but not just now. Later, maybe. But I'm not wrong when I say that I don't think things have changed all that much. Throughout history and yet today, one of the biggest obstacles that people face when they want to get to the real Jesus, one of the biggest obstacles is the church, the group of those who follow Jesus, who think they know Jesus the best. It can happen. It's happened throughout history. It happens today that we think we have Jesus in a box. We don't even know we have a box. We just think it's the real Jesus, but he's in a box. He's in our box. And we take all of our cultural assumptions and our core convictions, things that we're so certain of. The disciples were so certain that Jesus was Messiah who was going to come and, and, and get victory over their enemies. They were so certain of that. And so they put Jesus in that box. And so there's things that we have, cultural assumptions, theologies that we just are so convinced are true, and we put Jesus in that box. And that box keeps us from seeing the full, radical beauty of Jesus. And when we put ourselves as the gatekeepers of that Jesus in a box, well, then we keep others from seeing the beauty of the true Jesus as well. It's so easy for us to position ourselves as gatekeepers of the royal son because we know better than other folks and we can decide who's in and who's out and whose sins are acceptable, our sins, and whose sins are not acceptable, those people's sins. And, and, and we're kind of the filter people have to go through to get to the real Jesus. And so in some segments of the church today in America, you've got a Jesus who happens just to agree with everything we'd like to believe. How convenient is that? We've got a Jesus who's pro-America, pro-democracy, pro-capitalism, and pro-conservatism. Hallelujah. We've got a Jesus who's anti-gay, pro-right to bear arms, prim, proper, nice, tidy, religious. Jesus in a box. And happens to agree with us and everything. So we are the people, the gatekeepers, who have all the answers to every question. And if you have uh, disagreements with that, well, then we tell you to shut up. Because you're creating a mess for our Jesus in a box. And then we think we're marching to victory, just like the disciples did. Jesus is here to help us win. And so we're marching to victory, and maybe we're not taking Jerusalem back for God, but we're going to take America back for God, and the way we're going to do it is because Jesus is going to give us power over other people so we can uh, impose our superior wisdom and, and higher morality on all those other sinners and, and, and save America and everyone else uh, from their own sins. And, and so Jesus is going to empower us to take America back for God. We're marching to victory. And if any blind beggars get in the way, or any liberals get in the way, we tell them to shut up, and we just march over them. And it makes me wonder how many sincere, hungry, blind beggars have been silenced and shut up and barred from the kingdom because we got a Jesus in a box and we're marching to the victory for all the ideals of our box instead of marching for the kingdom. How many people can't see the beauty of the real Jesus because of the ugliness of his followers who co-opt Jesus to reinforce their ugly box of assumptions and ideals? You know, there's a bumper sticker, I'm sure many of you have seen it, and I, 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 I so empathize with it. I've seen it in a lot of different venues. Uh, it's a slogan. Here's a cartoon version of it where he, he, the person says, Please, Jesus, protect me from your followers. <laughs> Can some of you say amen to that? A little more profoundly, Gandhi, Gandhi said this at one point uh, about uh, the British. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. 
Gandhi was a person who really got Christ. He didn't call himself a Christian, but he got the Jesus lifestyle. His whole philosophy of nonviolence was based on the Gospels. At one point he said, at one point he said, if a fraction of Christians who profess faith in Jesus actually lived like Christ, he said, I think the whole world would convert to Christianity in a matter of years by the sheer beauty of the Gospel. Instead, the main obstacle to seeing the beauty of the Jesus is often Jesus' followers. I decided, uh, to be very honest with you here, uh, uh, sometime around the mid-90s, I decided I was no longer going to identify myself as a Christian uh, when I'm talking to strangers. And until I understand, until I know what they associate with that word. Or evangelical, even worse, was evangelical. I was no longer going to identify myself as Christian or evangelical. Last radio, uh, Christian radio talk show I ever did, uh, I said that. And I had uh, the phones light up. It was a call-in talk show uh, saying, why are you a coward for Jesus? Why are you afraid to stand up? They didn't hear a thing I said. And that was the, that's when I decided I'm not going to do any more Christian talk shows. <laughs> not, not AM. No. <laughs> dangerous, dangerous territory. Not good. I get treated a lot more Christianly when I'm on secular shows. I'll go on secular shows. Christians are dangerous. But see, here's the thing. What I learned in my experience and what a lot of studies have shown is that a lot of people, when they hear the word Christian or hear the word evangelical, what comes to their mind is not necessarily positive. In fact, more often than not, it's quite negative. Uh, what comes to their mind is often stuff that I wouldn't want at all identify with. In fact, what comes to their mind is often stuff that I think the, the kingdom of God is directly opposed to. So why would I use a word when it's going to carry all that baggage in? Now when a stranger asks me, are you a Christian? I'm on a plane reading a book, for, for example, and they say, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Are you a Christian? I'll say, well, I don't know about that word. You know, that word, what does it mean? Uh, but I do try to follow Jesus, and I think this is the best way to live, and, and you know, and, and I like to talk to you about him. And I know that I've had a number of conversations with people that I wouldn't have had if I would have answered yes when they asked me, are you a Christian? Because it became clear in the course of the conversation that the word Christian is something they want to run away from. Lord, protect me from your followers. I, I, I totally get that. In fact, I've become convinced that one of the best ways to evangelize today, to spread the gospel today, is to side with the unbeliever against the church. All right, yeah, that's, this is a pastor of an evangelical megachurch talking to you here. But look at, look at, I, I, when, when I listen to people have their, their, their gripes about the church and Jesus' followers, more often than not, I think they got a point. And I'm not here to defend a religion or defend a tradition or anything. I just want to present the gospel. And so the gospel in the, and the kingdom is to a large degree against a lot of the stuff that the church in the past and the church today has done. So why would I try to defend that? I, I don't want to be a gatekeeper of the church. No, I, I just want to be a person who shares Christ. And so... I often will say, I totally agree with you, and then I'll, I'll up the ante even more. It's even worse than you're saying, <laughs> you know? Because we're here to bring about the kingdom, not, not, not further a religion. I find, and I'm sure many of you found the same thing, that often when I see Jesus represented in Jesus' spokespeople on the television, or hear Jesus presented on a Christian talk show, or in some other media, often when I hear that, I say to myself, if I was an unbeliever and I thought that's what Jesus was about, I would run the other way quickly. Uh, if that's what Jesus is about, then I'm becoming a Buddhist tonight. <laughs> and so, sometimes to present the real Jesus, you have to contrast him with the Jesus that people are getting bombarded with. 
To get to the real Jesus, sometimes you've got to press through his followers. The real Jesus. The Jesus that, in the Gospels, apart from the filters that we try to put on, and the real Jesus doesn't want and doesn't need gatekeepers. Because the real Jesus isn't a high and mighty royal kingly Jesus. And he doesn't come to, to form a little holy club to serve as his filters for who gets in and who gets out. The real Jesus doesn't turn away anybody. In fact, the real Jesus gravitates away from the religious tidy people and gravitates towards the messy people, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the worst of sinners. He hangs out with those people. The real Jesus seems to like messy people. In fact, the real Jesus creates messes. That's a good thing, too, because whether you know it or not, we're all messy people. And the real Jesus creates messes. He seems to delight in creating messes. When he hangs out with the prostitutes and tax collectors, and he goes to parties with the worst of sinners. Man, he's messing with the Pharisees' box. And he's creating messes and scandals all over the place. One of the ways that you can maybe know that you're living in the right way and, and, and loving in the right way is that you're ticking off religious people because you're making a mess. They're saying, how can you do that? And they'll see you as condoning. You're condoning their lifestyle and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, create a mess. That's a, that's a good mess to create. And the real Jesus is not a pro-American, pro-democracy, pro-capitalism, pro-conservatism, anti-gay, pro-gun, prim-proper, nice, tidy, religious Jesus. The real Jesus is pro-people, period. Pro-people, period. Amen. He's pro all people. He died for all people. He's on the side of all people. And we dare not ever put a box around that to say some are in and some are out. He's pro all people. He's pro Americans. He's pro Iranians, pro Iraqians, pro Soviet Union, pro Chinese, pro Japanese, pro, pro Latino. He's pro the world. He dies for the whole world. All people. He's for the religious and the not religious, he's for the straight and the gay, he's for the good citizens and the bad citizens, for the conservatives and, yes, the liberals, he's for all people, and we dare not put him in a box that limits that or qualifies that. And just as I'm saying that, I am sure that somebody listening to this, whether in the auditorium or podcast or whatever, is thinking to themselves right now, that sounds like relativism to me, if you've been, especially if you've been raised in a religious environment, you're saying that sounds like relativism, Mm, we don't stand for everything, everything wishy-washy, just lovey-dovey, don't stand for any principles. Caught you, didn't I? I feel you, feel you. Okay, that's exactly what you're thinking. Well, look at, Jesus is pro-everybody. He's not pro-everything. Now, there's some nasty things. But he never lets the things that he's against get in the way of the people that he loves. He's not pro-everything, but he is pro-everybody. And we're called to follow his example. So there, there's things that we don't approve of, of course. Of course. There's things in your own life you don't approve of. But you're pro-everybody. And in doing that, you manifest the, the kingdom of God. The real Jesus is not marching to victory to impose his or anyone else's morally superior will on others. The real Jesus was marching and is marching towards Calvary, where instead of conquering his enemies, he gives his life for his enemies. The real Jesus is marching towards humble servant uh, manifestation of the kingdom of God. And we are marching in that march to the degree that our lives replicate that. If you're marching to some kind of victory over people, I submit to you that you're not marching in the Jesus march. Uh, the Jesus march always looks like Calvary. It always manifests self-sacrificial love. It's always about serving others. It's about loving and forgiving and blessing your enemies rather than seeking to retaliate against them and to squash them. Folks, it's time that we let Jesus out of our box. 
It's time that we let him call into question everything about whatever box that we have. To make him Lord of our life. To make Jesus Lord of our life means that nothing else is Lord. Nothing else is ultimate. Which means we've got to give Jesus permission to screw us up, to mess with our heads, to mess with our box, to call into question even the most fundamental assumptions we might have about things. Your assumptions about your culture, your assumptions about your country, your assumptions about your religion, your assumptions about your lifestyle and your values and your judgments, we submit them all to Jesus and maybe he'll mess with them a little bit and screw up your head a little bit and that'd be a good thing. We've got to let Jesus, to make, to make him Lord of our life means we give him permission to mess us up. Jesus, come and make a mess of everything that we're so sure of including our role as the gatekeepers of the royal son, to knock us off our high horses and to get them to realize, let him help us realize that we're all beggars and the only thing we can do is cry out for mercy. And as beggars, blind beggars, we're in no position to ever tell anybody else to shut up. So the question we've got to ask is, do we have Jesus in a box? Do we have Jesus in a box? Have we defined a Jesus after our own image and our own likeness. A Jesus who's just there to reinforce what we already believe anyways. Uh, Are we marching to victory over others or are we marching in servitude and in loving expression towards others? Are we willing to, are we able to welcome the worst of sinners as just as if they were uh, the best of saints? Because in the kingdom that whole gradation scale has been collapsed. In fact, To make Jesus Lord of our life, to blow up our box means we consider ourselves to be the worst of sinners. Our sin is the two by four. Their sin is the dust particle. Are we able to do that? We will let Jesus mess with our box. To do that, we've got to keep Jesus out of our box and let Jesus be the real Jesus, not just the Jesus that agrees with our assumptions. One more point I want to make here. The challenge we face, all of us face, as fallen human beings, is that we like our box. We get security from having a nice box, don't we? We, 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 we are convinced that our box is true, and to some degree our security is found in the rightness of our box. And our significance and worth is wrapped up in, in being the person who has the right box. And see, whenever we get life from our box, our box of assumptions, our box of of, of, of theology, if that becomes a source of life to us, we can't be okay with a mess. We can't. If that's a source of life to us, then we will inevitably be gatekeepers of the royal box and call it Jesus. And we can't be okay with messengers. We'll position ourselves as the royal protectors of our box, and to that degree, we will suppress the beauty of the kingdom because the beauty of the kingdom is usually found in things that mess with our box. Here's the thing. Life is an ever-flowing and sometimes turbulent river. It's not a quiet pond. It's messy. Uh, it's, not, it's not tidy. But sometimes we try to make it into a pond instead of letting it be a river. Many people, and this is especially an affliction of, of people who are come out of religious environments, many live in anger and frustration because They can't accept the river for being a river. You try to make it into a pond. And you try to make it a pond by imposing little walls around it. You know, walls of your assumption. And you say, uh, this is my box. I've got it all figured out. And it's never going to change. And you find your security and worth and significance in this little artificial pond that you've created. And now you block out the rest of the mess. The river that's always flowing. 
To the degree that we do that, folks, we become stagnant. We can't grow. We can't learn. Life is a flow. It's not a stagnant thing. We, we stop being fully alive. And to the degree that we do that, we impose our own pond on this ever-flowing river. To that degree, well, we block out the mess. We block out the beauty of messy people. We stop being expanded. Life is a river, and it's messy. Rivers are always changing, which means we are always supposed to be changing, always supposed to be growing, always supposed to be evolving, always supposed to be getting deeper in our relationship with God. There's always more to go. There's always more to grow. There's always more to learn. It's a river. It's, we're supposed to be changing. Even our beliefs are, are, are change. If you're a thinking person, it's normal to have your beliefs change. If you're believing the exact same thing that you were taught in third grade, and now you're 47 years old, are, are you thinking about this stuff? You know, what happens is, however, sometimes people in certain environments, in third grade, you're given a theology and you're taught, you believe this, you go to heaven. If you believe anything else, you're going to hell. And what that teacher did, as sincere as they were, they just installed a fear of learning in you, a phobia. And so you now have got a little pond and your life insecurity is found in the rightness of your beliefs that you all inherited in third grade, how convenient that is for you. But having that, now you become the guardian of that little tiny box you got in third grade and, and the protector, and you'll tell people who mess with your box to shut up. No, life's a river, and we're growing. And, and, and it, we've got to let go of, of all of that box as a source of life for us. Do, do, you, do you know this, this song from the Indigo Girls? Um, it's, it's the less, I, and this might be offensive to some people too, but it says, the less I seek my source in some definitive Closer I am to fine. Closer. Well, I went to the doctor of philosophy. You know that song? Isn't it go closer to fine? I, it, it's a, I, I love that song. I think it's a very insightful song. Now, I'd make one qualification. If I was writing this song and singing this song, I'd say, the less I seek my source in some definitive other than Jesus Christ, the closer I am to fine. There's one definitive that we're given. There's one definitive that we need, that, that we need and that is that God looks like Jesus Christ. The, the cross tells us what God thinks about us. The cross reveals God to us. That's the one definitive. To, to make that is the source of our life, the source of our worth, the source of our well-being. All our eggs are in that basket. I have other definitive beliefs, and so do you. I've got a bunch of opinions about a lot of things, and mine are all right. <laughs> but I can't get life from that. See, have definitive beliefs. I'm not saying, oh, I don't believe anything. No, hey, there's, there's, yeah, all, everyone has definitive beliefs, especially those people who think they don't have definitive beliefs. They're full of beliefs. Have definitive beliefs, but don't get life from them. Don't make them a source of life. Don't have any security, any worth, any significance wrapped up in this. It ought to be the case that I can be wrong. And after all, I, I may be wrong. When I get to the, the, the judgment seat of Christ, it may be that I'm wrong on every opinion I have, but if I'm right about Jesus Christ, I'm okay. Uh, my, my worth and my identity is found in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And see, what that does is it frees me. It frees, if, if you've got one source of life, everything else is somewhat negotiable. Not that it's unimportant, but it's negotiable. You don't have to cling to it too tightly. You know why people get in these ungodly fights over, over Jesus and the love of God? You see, they get in these debates about the love of God and they end up hating each other, which kind of is a contradiction if you think about it. But it's because being right is more important than the love of God. <laughs> My opinions about Jesus are more important than Jesus. And whenever we have idols in our belief system, well, then the gatekeeper comes out whenever we start discussing them and someone disagrees and we start getting that amygdala, reptilian brainstem, chemical juice flowing through our system. We get angry. We get, start breathing hard. 
And now we get totally ungodly. No, you have one source of life, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. And see, only when Jesus Christ is our one source of life, only then can we allow Jesus Christ to call everything else into question. Can, can we open up everything and say, Jesus, you're our source of life, not my opinion about America or my opinion about politics or my opinion about all my other theological beliefs. And now we're giving him permission to mess with us, which means we can grow. Only when Jesus Christ is our source of life and not all of the rightness of our beliefs, only then can we begin to grow beyond them. Maybe you'll adjust a few beliefs as you're going on. I am much less certain about many more things than I was even 10 years ago. Uh, the things I am certain about, I have more conviction about it, but uh, I'm a lot more ignorant than I ever thought I would ever be. <laughs> but see, we, we grow. We're supposed to be growing. Only when Jesus Christ is our one source of life are we able to discover the beauty that's wrapped up in messes and embrace the mess and not be threatened by the mess. Only when Jesus Christ is our one source of life are we able to flow with the river instead of always fighting it. Trying to convince ourselves that we've got it all figured out. You're never going to have it all figured out. The day you think you've got it all figured out, remind yourself that that's one piece of evidence that you don't have it figured out because if you did have it all figured out, you'd know that you couldn't figure it all out. Did that even make sense? It just kind of flowed out of me. Only when Jesus Christ is our one source of life can we let go of our role as gatekeeper. And we can... Only then, when Jesus is our one source of life, and not our order, and not our box, not our definitions, only then can we embrace the blind beggar, the beauty of the blind beggar, the beauty of the mess that the blind beggar is creating, the beauty of the way that he messes with our own theology. And only then can we discover and really realize that we're all blind beggars. And all of us have to cry out for mercy. And so none of us are in a position to ever tell any other beggar to shut up. You can't have access to Jesus because I'm the gatekeeper. Lord, I'm going to pray, pray this prayer. I'd like to ask the prayer team to come up here. Uh, and if you want to pray, uh, uh, come up here and uh, pray with these folks for any reason whatsoever or, or submit your life to Christ, I encourage you to do that as we're dismissed. And don't forget there's assignments about the seminar after the service. There's also food to support our, our young people. So stop by there. But let me end with this prayer. Father, give us the courage to allow you to mess with our, our hearts and mess with our heads. God, give us a, a security that's found in, in, in our uh, awareness of your love for us and that that is enough. And to not try to be getting worth and security from all the other particulars that we believe, from the rightness of our box. Lord, free us from ever trying to put you in our box and define you in our self-serving terms. But God, uh, help us to be a people who let you be the radical, loving, outrageous Lord that you are and are transformed by that. Mess with us, Lord. Mess up our lives and help us to be okay with the mess. Help us to be okay with the river and to flow with it rather than fighting it all the time. As we just cling to you, our one source of life, and don't get our source from any other means. Holy Spirit, be honest. Flow through us as we leave this place to let you out of the box and to love the world. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.